Court is now in session with your host, Peter Briggs. Welcome to the Lawyers and Lay People podcast, a conversation-based podcast featuring interviews with some of Georgia's top lawyers, where we, in an easy-to-understand way, answer the questions that are in the minds of you, the layperson. In this podcast, we talk to specialists in a particular field of law to hear directly from them as to what clients typically ask them and what they should be asking. I'm your host, Peter Bricks. I graduated law school in 2006 from Georgia State University here in Atlanta, and I've been practicing as a lawyer for almost 17 years. I'm a personal injury and bankruptcy attorney as well as a registered mediator. Today, we're joined by Justin Holcomb. Justin is a partner at Scar and Fiegel LLP. Their website is scarandfiegel.com. His practice focuses on the litigation of consumer rights cases, both individual and class actions, involving credit discrimination, credit reporting errors due to the reporting of false or obsolete information, denial of employment or promotions due to erroneous criminal background searches, unsolicited telephone calls or text messages, do not call list violations, unauthorized payment transfers and billing errors, improper repossessions, and abusive or illegal collection activity. He is a member of the National Association of Consumer Advocates and regularly presents on a multitude of consumer rights issues at the National Consumer Law Center's annual Consumer Rights Litigation Conference. Justin received his BA in political science from the University of Georgia and his JD from Georgia State University. Well, Justin, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So uh, what is it you like about practicing consumer law? Uh, well, I kind of view myself as a bit of a Robin Hood. You know, I kind of I, I help people who are struggling for whatever reason financially, either inaccurate credit reports, debt collection issues, um, you know, telemarketing harassment. I, we we help people take on the big companies, you know, Goliath, and um, you know, we try to be the little guy that takes on the big guys. Um, so um, you know, we're going to kind of get to all the various aspects of the technicalities that you can contest something. Let's just start with debt collection defense. So when you get a call from a client who's just been sued by a creditor, first off, are the kind of cases y'all handle, are these mainly magistrate small claims court or are they state court? It ranges the gamut. It's, some are state court cases, some are magistrate court cases. I would say that probably 80% are in the magistrate court. Um, but the cases that are larger than $15,000, they can't be filed in magistrate court because of jurisdictional limits. And then there's some creditors, mostly with out-of-state attorneys, um, who don't like filing in magistrate court because it requires an appearance. And so they like to file everything in state court where they can try to file motions without having to appear in court. So when you get that first call, what are the steps you go through with the client to determine if this is just a legitimate debt they owe without a real defense and, and we need to look at settlement versus here are some of the issues that are wrong with the plaintiff's case that we can attack. In pretty much any debt buyer case, which is means you're being sued by someone other than the entity in which you obtained the loan, there's going to be defenses. Um, you know, they have to prove, uh, I always use the analogy that if you owe your mother $20 and your next door neighbor comes over and knocks on your door and says, hey, you know, your mom told me to collect that $20 you owe me, you'd probably say, what? <laughs> you know, it's, well, you're going to need to, I'm going to need something more than you just telling me that I owe to you and not to her. And, and so that's the thing. And uh, 
and the, the Georgia courts are very strict on how they have to prove their assignments and and the do, and the documents they need to have in order to you know to show um, you know the debt was incurred the amount of the debt uh, the amount of the quality of the paper there's a there's a book that was written probably about five or six years ago uh, by John Halpern called Bad Paper that talks about the quality of the paper in a lot of these transactions and uh, and so uh, there's a there's a whole lot of defenses in pretty much any debt buyer case and so we we find those that we find those to be very defensible in almost every case um, now original creditor cases um, sometimes we see things that they've done wrong and sometimes we have counterclaims but the vast majority of those are are cases where we're we're probably looking to settle if you're being sued by the party in which you obtained the loan so let's say you look at the complaint and you can just see from the complaint itself that there's some sort of defense you can attack um, how exactly does that case go from a litigation perspective how long does it take um, you know what what are your sort of retainer fees how does that work well the retainers fees are gonna for, the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna interview the client and we're gonna look at the uh, we're gonna look at the, compl the complaint and we're gonna figure out what kind of defenses are out there um, and our our fee is going to be fact determinable on the complaint. Now, if this is a case, let's say it's a debt buyer case, and it's filed in magistrate court, which the majority of these cases are, then what we're looking at is if a client calls us and they say, hey, I never took out this loan. Well, in that case, we're probably, if, if we believe the client to be truthful and we can get evidence that backs that up, we're probably going to take that case, you know, on a contingency and we're going to assert a counterclaim because hey this is a debt that was never owed and we're going to probably try to collect money from the other side um, now on the other hand if the client says you know I, I had this debt i think they're seeking to collect a little bit more than i owe you know i i i don't know what these transactions are um you know so or you know or hey i don't you know i don't think i i think that there may be something else or they're just not sure those kind of cases or you know, those, what we're usually looking to do is we're going to charge uh, a fee, usually of a, a percentage of what's owed, because the more that's owed, there's more work that goes into the case. Um, but, you know, usually it's around 20%. Now, sometimes we'll work out a deal where we charge a little less, but we'll take a percentage of what we save you in, in settlement. Um, but usually, in, there's exceptions, but in the vast majority of cases, um, we do not make recommendations to our clients to pay money in debt buyer cases. Um, our goal um, is to um, have the only money they pay what they pay us in our fee and to get the other side to go away. And when you say you got a debt buyer case and there are some usually some sort of claims you can assert, can you just be more specific? Like what, what typically is the uh, is this an FDCPA claim, or like what typically are the common defenses in the debt buyer cases? Well, again, um, the first thing I said is we look at the assignments. So that's the first thing is the the quality of the paperwork, the, you know, the assignments. And then the second thing is, okay, they have the assignment. Can they prove the contract? Can they prove the terms of the contract that they're seeking to collect upon, including their rights to collect things like interest, um, you know, accelerate the balance, and all those type of things. Um, and then the other things that we're looking for is, you know, can, can they show what the balance is? Because a lot of times they just buy a charge-off statement and they don't have the, uh, the underlying, you know, the underlying records to, to show um, that the balance was owed. So if they, you know, if they just have a charge-off statement that says you owe $3,000, 
and it's in, and we asked for the underlying records um, to show how that balance was accumulated, and, and they can't provide that, and then um, they can't, you know, and all we're seeing is on the statement as far as charges are, are added on fees, but they don't have the contract that, that, that entitles them to collect those fees, um, then that's a problem. So is it pretty much more from a paperwork standpoint that it really comes down to what the creditor has, or is there things that your client can give you or needs to have on their end that can assist the case? Well, most people don't keep, you know, their credit card statements. I think that the advice of most people is to shred them for identity theft purposes. And so, you know, usually they don't have a lot, um, but the issues are if you have disputed transactions, you know, the the Fair Credit Billing Act allows you to dispute a transaction on, on say, a credit card statement. And so if, there, if there's a transaction, a, a billing error, which can be anything from, you know, I ordered something online and I didn't receive it, or I got double charged, or there's, I didn't authorize this transaction. You know, those types of billing errors that, we, that usually result in what we call chargebacks. Uh, if, if those things aren't resolved in your favor, now those can create a, a affirmative claim. So if you have you know, evidence of prior disputes and those types of things, those are important to have. But in most cases, the papers that they're served with are the only documents that the consumer is going to have. And so we're looking at what does the other side have, and, uh, and, and that's how we're defending the case because the, the plaintiff has a burden of proof. And what about, uh, you talked a little bit about the original creditor. What if it's an action from original creditor? How do you guys typically handle those defenses? In those cases, we'll look for things that may be wrong. Um, and sometimes we find things, uh, but the vast majority of the time against an original creditor, um, you know, most of these banks, they keep good records. Um, they're required to keep good records. And so if it's an original creditor case, um, our advice, now sometimes clients say, hey, we just want to go for it and we'll go for them and sometimes we'll win it, sometimes you'll lose it. Um, and, and we'll do that. If a client wants to try the case, we'll go and try it. Um, but the vast majority of those cases, we're looking to try to settle for their, as the best deal that we can get. Okay. Let's turn to um, FDCPA claims. Um, what are some of the common collection efforts that creditors make that should either alert a consumer that they have a potential FDCPA claim or, um, you know, that you typically see turn into be good FDCPA cases? Well, anyone who is having issues with debt collectors, um, whether they're ringing their phone off the hook, they're getting a lot of letters, they're getting threats that they're going to sue you, or they're threats they're going to you know, repossess your car, anything like that, uh, we encourage you to contact us. Um, we'll look over your correspondence because we don't expect our clients to, to necessarily understand the, the details and nuances of the law and, and to know that they're treating fairly and, and uh, you know, appropriately under the law. And so what we do is we're happy to review all of those things and to give someone specific advice if they're getting any kind of collection um, harassment or communications if, if they're just unable to pay or they're behind and they just want us to look over their communications, we're happy to do so. Um, that said, the typical FDCPA cases you see are uh, ringing someone's phone off the hook, uh, you know, saying, hey, I, I, you know, I can't be called uh, at this time or at this place, uh, or someone sends cease communication notice or refusal to pay notice and there's uh, continued communication. 
uh, someone, if someone makes a dispute, um, there's a 30-day dispute process under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Someone makes a dispute and they continued collection attempts without providing verification. Um, you know, false threats. Says, you know, a lot of times, especially when you have some of these illegal loans anyways, like payday loans that people get online, you know, because they can't sue because their loans aren't lawful, you see a lot of really heinous threats. Like people threatening, oh, you know, we have the sheriff coming over, they're going to arrest you or, or something like that. There's there are certain scams where someone will call pretending to be like a process server. And it's like, well, if you give this guy a call, then, you know, we're not going to come out or whatever else. But um, there's a lot of false threats. And so what we generally tell people is, First of all, if there's threats that you're, that you're going to be sued, um, that usually means you're not going to be sued. It's not 100%, but usually if someone's threatening to sue you, um, that, that means that they're, they're using that to get, to get you to pay them um, because they have no lawful means of going after you. The folks that sue, the lawyers that sue, you'll get a letter from a local law firm that says, and that's going to be a letter, and then they, they'll sue you. And so worry about a threat to sue when the sheriff comes and hands you papers, not when you get a phone call. If someone's calling you threatening to sue, it's almost always a scam. So let's say you get one of those threatening phone calls um, and you have an actionable FDCPA claim. What are the type of damages you can collect and how does it vary based on exactly you know what happened how how you were threatened etc well the the fair debt collection practices act provides for one statutory damages of up to a thousand dollars for uh, in any action um, if you if you prevail and then it also provides for in, a, in the case of a class action for statutory damages of up to five hundred thousand dollars or one percent of the company's net worth um, in addition, you can collect your actual damages, um, which is, you know, general damages for things like, you know, anxiety, um, you know, what, whatever type of, you know, kind of what we call non-economic damages are usually that are out there. And sometimes there's economic damages, you know, hard specials, but, but usually what we're looking at is, um, you know, non-economic damages, which can also be trebled under the uh, Fair Business Practices Act, which is a Georgia law that any violation of the FDCPA by a debt collector, it's going to be a violation of the Fair Business Practices Act um, off of a Georgia Court of Appeals decision. And so that leaves us, so we'll get treble damages and potentially punitive damages under the Georgia Act. And from a client's perspective, if they've retained you and you're bringing an FDCPA claim, is that is it pretty much just you as a lawyer doing the work? Does the client really need to be doing anything during the case? How much effort are they putting in? Well, the client the client needs to be aware of the case. Um, the client's going to, we're, we're going to send them a copy of the uh, complaint. We're not going to expect them to understand all the legalese, but the factual matters in there, we want to make sure that what we're telling the court is accurate, and we want the client to review it and sign off on it. Um, and then after that, we're going, we're, we're going to handle, you know, most of the settlement discussions, and we'll communicate those discussions to the client to the extent that those are happening. Um, you know, ultimately, the decision to settle any matter belongs to the client, and so we will communicate that. You know, we'll communicate any offers to the client. But for the most part, we're handling the details of the litigation. Now, will the client have to be prepared? Um, you know, in the event that there's not an early settlement, and we're going through discovery, the client will will have to be there for you know their deposition, and we'll prepare the client for the deposition, and the client will have to assist in preparing responses to. Um, whatever discovery requests are sent to us. But, but it's usually, 
usually the the time to respond to discovery requests isn't too laborsome. Um, whereas, and, and again, most cases settle before we get to that stage. Um, but but those where we're litigating out, it, it's usually not too burdensome. Um, the, the worst part is usually a deposition, and those don't usually last more than a few hours. So let's turn now to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which I know is a, also a big part of your practice. Um, and it's a hot topic of what to do yeah. in a situation <laughs> where you're, you, you don't think something's accurate yes. in your credit report. Um, a lot of stuff about it on the internet about how to handle it. So can you set the record straight? What, you got something wrong on your credit report. What is the wrong thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Well, the, the first thing, before we get to there, I just want to point out that a lot of people think the Fair Credit Reporting Act, they think Equifax, TransUnion, Experian. Um, there's hundreds of consumer reporting agencies out there. And it includes not just what we think of as typical credit reporting. It, thinks, uh, it, it includes any type of uh, you know, credit, background, um, any kind of screening for a consumer's you know, creditworthiness, uh, reputation, employment. So you know, background checks, all kinds of things, you know, employment background checks, uh, all, you know, potentially gun background checks. Um, there's a, you know, we had, we had a client who had a, uh, who wasn't, wasn't able to coach uh, Little League because of an inaccurate background check. And that was subject to the FCRA. And so just, just want to make sure that people understand that the FCRA isn't limited. Um, a credit report or a consumer reporting agency isn't limited to what we think of as the big three. Um, but with respect to the big three, the number one thing that I tell people is don't dispute accurate information. Um, there is a lot of uh, misinformation out there on the Internet, as you were alluding to, um, where people say, hey, you can clean up your credit report by following, you know, by disputing it this way and saying X, Y, Z, which, um, which isn't true. And the problem with that is sometimes it works temporarily, but that stuff always comes back. And when you inevitably have something inaccurate, um, and there's a thousand reasons why something can be inaccurate, you've lost credibility with the court, with the credit reporting agencies, and with any jury, if you, if you get that far. And it makes your case worth less um, if we can take it at all. And so the number one thing we say is, um, if you have questions, we'll talk to you for free. Um, but don't follow someone you see on TikTok that's telling you how to, you know, information on how to, how to dispute things or clear up your credit. Um, most of that stuff is wildly inaccurate. So you mentioned the Little League coach scenario. What mm -hmm. are some of the, I don't know, maybe more uncommon or at least things people, the layperson's not really thinking about of ways that you your credit report is impacting you and you can have a claim? Okay, well, um, a, a lot of cases we see are employment background screening cases. Um, someone goes and they apply for a job and there's, uh, some, there's inaccurate information on their background check. Uh, what's very common is you'll have two people with very similar names live in a similar area and so their information will show up on the other person's background check. So sometimes it's, you know, it, it's someone else's crime that's on your report. Or sometimes it's, you know, father-son that have the same name. We see that a lot where, um, you know, I have, a, I have a case right now that's pending against a credit reporting agency, a class action in Pennsylvania, um, that relates to where the, 
defendant uh, credit reporting agency provided uh, information, um, really, really damaging information um, about our client's son and attributed it to the, uh, the client. And, and so that client lost, you know, had uh, credit accounts closed um, because the uh, creditors saw that he was engaged in organized crime when he was not. Wow, that's pretty significant. Yeah. So <clears throat> that makes me think, you know, a lot of these credit reporting things, they can't just be you know, resolved right away. That chance yes. for the job, it passed, or to get the mortgage or whatever. So how long does this kind of case typically last when it involves litigation, and what are the type of damages that, are, that can be had? Well, the first step, credit reporting cases take a lot of preparation time beforehand. Um, we'll walk someone through the process of appropriately disputing and trying to correct a credit report. Um, if, the, if the credit reporting agencies and the furnishers, and the furnishers are usually the creditors that are providing information to the credit reporting agencies, if they do the right thing and they follow the law and they correct someone's credit report, you know, we've provided a free service and we're happy to do it. Um, but when they don't do the right thing and when they, when you send detailed notices with factual information, with documents that show that what's being reported is inaccurate and we'll walk you through the process of, of doing so and who to send the notices to and the credit reporting agencies decide to farm out to some you know, some country e either in South America or in, or in East Asia or South Asia, and they farm out the dispute uh, um, resolution uh, work to, to people who, you know, who maybe spend you know, a, few, a few minutes on it sometimes. Um, and again, this isn't every this isn't every case. I don't want to say that that's what always happens, but it will happen sometimes. And so what we're what we're seeing is if uh, if they don't do what they're supposed to do and and the consumers sent dispute and dispute and dispute, and, and they won't fix it, then at that point, then we will we'll file a claim under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And they can receive their, their actual damages, which is both, you know, things like the, the non-economic damages we talked about before, the anxiety, the loss of sleep, uh, you know, the traditional things that we think of. But then there's also, you know, hard damages, say you uh, were denied credit. Um, so we wanted you to hold on to any kind of adverse action letters that you've received. Um, you know, we don't want you going out applying for credit that you don't need or that you didn't want, but we ask that you just go about your life. And if you, you know, if you're at the store and they offer you a discount for a card and you would have taken it, then try to get it. And if they, and if they tell you no, um, because of this information on in credit report, then that's, you know, those, those are damages. Um, of course, you know, a lot of times we'll see people will get an interest rate that's higher. And so th those are damages that we can recover. Um, now, the FCRA also provides for statutory damages as well, um, a minimum of 100 up to $1,000 um, if the violation was willful. And then there's, a, uh, there's also provision for punitive damages and for attorney's fees. And so is this the same thing with the FDCPA and that some of these can settle before discovery and then others will just drag on? Yes, and a lot of that is just the type of case um, you know how many disputes we have, 
um, the strength of the case, the uh, the amount of damages that are stake, that are at stake. Um, large damages cases, they're, they're usually going to drag out longer because you know when you're seeking a lot of damages, they're going to want they're going to want a deposition. Like they're not going to, you know, they're not going to pay what your case is worth um, without being assured that your case is worth what you say it's worth. Um, but you know, on, on some of the smaller cases where you're fixing an inaccuracy, what you're looking at is you're looking at um, usually a lot of times maybe four. Um, smaller dollar cases. Um, so you'll have a case against, say, maybe each of the credit reporting agencies um, for the failure to properly reinvestigate a dispute, and then maybe a case against a furnisher for, for, not, um, for not properly responding to a dispute um, that they receive from a consumer reporting agency. And so what you're looking at is usually maybe kind of four, you know, smaller, middle, middle-sized you know, value cases, but t together, you know, they, they add up. So, and it gets your credit report fixed. And you, you, and usually at the end, you'll get a chance to review your corrected credit report. And they're going to want to make sure that uh, you sign off that, yeah, everything here is accurate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, let's turn to garnishment defense now. Yeah. Um, so, when you guys at your firm get a call from a client who's just received a some a notice of garnishment. Yes. Um, how often is it that they're just completely taken out of the blue? They've never heard of this creditor versus, okay, yeah, I remember that. And I remember they sued me and got that judgment and okay, I just need to deal with it now. Um, they've usually, not always, they've usually, if this was their debt, now there's, there's cases where it wasn't their debt and it's, you know, they garnished the wrong person with a similar name. I mean, we've had that happen. Um, but usually if this was their debt, they'll recognize the creditor. The real question is, do they remember getting served? Do they remember the lawsuit? Um, a lot of people move around a lot. And so the first thing we want to do is find out um, if they were properly served. Um, because if, there's no, if service was bad, then we can attack the judgment. Um, and we can stay the garnishment while we go and attack the judgment. Because if there's no judgment, they can't, they can't submit a garnishment. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to look up the underlying file and see how someone was served. And usually the service paperwork is going to indicate notorious service. And sometimes it's, it's personal service, but often what we see is notorious service. And so then we go and look, okay, so who was served? Does this per did that person live with you at the time? Or did you live at the address where service happened? Because sometimes I'll have an old address. And so what we'll do is we'll look for a way of, you know, what we'll need documents to show that for whatever reason that the service was, wasn't good. And if there's no good service, then the, uh, the judgment wasn't wasn't valid and we can attack the uh, the underlying judgment um and now and, and so that's that's the first thing we look for is uh is whether or not the, the judgment was good in the first place and then the second is how old is it um after seven years the judgment goes dormant um if they haven't renewed it and then there's a three-year period where they can file a writ of siri facius to um, renew that judgment um but sometimes we'll see people file um garnishments on uh out-of-date judgments, and so that, that, that can be a defense. A, a lot of times what we'll ha see happen is someone will try to, someone moves to Georgia from another state, so they'll try to domesticate a judgment that's uh, outside the limitations for domesticating a judgment here in Georgia. So that's something that we'll see sometimes. Or, um, and then there's attacks to the garnishment itself, um, and that can be anything from there's a, you used to not know what most of these are, but uh, after a case a few years ago brought by uh, Atlanta Legal Aid uh, against the uh, clerk of court in Gwinnett County, uh, 
that resulted in a case that overturned Georgia's old garnishment statute. And so Georgia had to completely rewrite its garnishment laws to comply with, uh, with an order of the Northern District of Georgia. And, uh, and to do that, they now provide you with a form that lists most of, not all, but most of the exemptions that, that you would, that a consumer can raise. And so, um, so there's a whole lot of exemptions, you know, whether it could be a pension fund, uh, money in an IRA. Uh, you know, a lot of times we'll see someone will file a bank garnishment, and all the money in the bank account is either their spouse's money because it's a joint bank account, or it's uh, their wages. And uh, while the federal wage protection doesn't maintain its protection uh, once it's paid, uh, the Georgia wage protection, uh, when it hits you, when your wages hit your bank, they maintain uh, the 25% protection. Uh, so 75% of your wages are protected, and they can only collect, you know, uh, up to 25% or you know, minimum wage. So there's a, uh, so there's wage protections. So if they clean out the account and you know all of your money in the account is wages, and then all the other money belongs to someone, say your partner. And you know, there's another statute in Georgia that a joint account belongs during the lifetime of the parties um, to each um, in proportion to their net contribution. And so, you know, sometimes you'll see maybe a mom or, or a partner or whatever else that'll ha that'll put all the money in the account, but someone else's name is on it so they can access the account. And uh, and those those funds, even though that person can access the account, if they belong to the other to, to a stranger to the judgment. Um, then they have a claim to those funds that's superior to that of the, the creditor that's uh, trying to obtain those funds. And, and that's even true to a married couple, I believe. Is that yes. right? Yes. Just for our listeners, there is a judgment that's going to precede the garnishment, mm -hmm. and the judgment is often going to be in a different county than the garnishment is they they yes. don't have to be, but usually it's probably in a different county. So you've got multiple lawsuits going on and the very first step is making sure that the initiating lawsuit that led to the judgment that service was was proper that's correct yeah. and then yeah the garnishments 95 percent of them were filed in gwinnett county um because they are very efficient at uh at handling garnishments and that's why it was the clerk of gwinnett county that was sued um by you know several years ago in the case that i was speaking of um, so the vast majority of garnishments are filed in Gwinnett County because most registered agents of companies are in Gwinnett County. And that's, you know, a garnishment is filed where they have jurisdiction over the garnishee. Right. Um, so the uh, system where you, or I'm sorry, the process where you have an issue with the garnishment, now that's called a traverse, right? where you're contesting something related to the garnishment. Well, there's a traverse, and then there's also a claim. There's two different, there's two different processes. Now, any time we're filing a claim, we'll also file a traverse because that's what the courts are used to seeing, and that's going to set up your right to an immediate hearing. Um, and they have, to give you the, they have to give you the hearing. Um, and if they don't give you the hearing within uh, a specific time frame, uh, they changed it recently. So, I mean, I, th I think it's still 10 days. Um, but... Uh, if they don't give you the hearing within a specific time frame, then they violated your due process rights. Okay, so let's say you have that hearing. Yes. And there is an issue with, let's say, service in the underlying judgment. Uh, what, 
is is the judge going to stay the garnishment um or uh, likely is the judge likely going to stay the garnishment and or say that the garnishment can continue but we're holding the money in the registry of the court like how does it direct immediately impact your client as far as say not having part of their wages garnished while this process plays out um you know Unfortunately, what's usually going to happen is the court's going to stay it, um, stay the proceeding. Um, now, the garnishment itself is going to remain in effect, but no money will be, it, it'll be paid to the court and no money will be dispersed to the, the creditor. And so then what happens is we, the garnishment court doesn't have jurisdiction to determine the validity of the judgment. So we have to go back to the court that entered the judgment if we're going to challenge the underlying judgment. And so once that judge rules, you'll take it to the garnishment court and um, or more more generally we usually just take it to the uh, creditor's attorney um, you know before we go to the court I mean we can contest it with the court but if you know once the once the trial court that issued the judgments decided there's there's really no nothing to argue about so we can usually resolve it with the other side right um, so before I let you go um, I know your firm has other practice areas, mm -hmm. Electronic Funds Transfer Act, Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Yes. Just talk, just explain to the listener what exactly goes into those acts and like where okay. where do they, pretend, if, how would they know they would potentially have a claim they need to contact uh, you? Electronic Funds Transfer Act. Now, those claims are really kind of a category of laws that I won't go into a whole lot of detail here um, that come into play. But what we're looking at in those cases is we found a, a proliferation recently of, uh, especially with all the data breaches that have been out there that we've all heard about and we've all received letters about, of, uh, of third-party criminal enterprises um, accessing um, people's accounts and uh, transferring money around and then ultimately wiring them, wiring funds out. Um, wire transfers are unfortunately not governed by most uh, consumer protection statutes um, that, that apply to other types of transfers. Um, so we have limited we have limited means to to go after unlawful wire transfers, but we can go after them. But our 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 remedies aren't as strong um, as they are with respect to any other type of electronic funds transfer. Um, where if it's say if someone's taking a cash advance from a credit card, it's governed by the Fair Credit Billing Act. But if someone accesses your checking account and say they're sending money for, like via Zelle or Cash App or bank-to-bank um, -bank transfer, um, any of those types of things, they're governed by the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, which can give you um, you know actual damages, your money back, uh, treble damages. Um, punitive damages. I mean, so there, there's a bunch of other remedies that are that are out there um, for those type of things. But what we're looking for there is, you know, people who have been a victim of uh, of fraudsters um, hacking into their financial accounts and and stealing money from them. Um, and so we're 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 doing our best to go after these financial institutions and and make them. Um, you know, make them responsible for not having the security procedures in place um, to prevent fraudsters from improperly accessing accounts. Um, and then the, the TCPA, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, that's a large part of my, my personal practice. And that's, uh, there's, there's kind of two main provisions that, that are out there. There's the uh, a robocall provision. Uh, nobody can call your cell phone. 
um, using an auto dialer or an artificial or pre-recorded voice without your prior express consent. Um, unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court has kind of gutted the auto dollar definition, so for, there's not a lot of auto dollar claims that are out there anymore. Um, but artificial and pre-recorded pre voice claims are still out there. Um, whenever you get a call and you answer it on your cell phone, and it's, uh, it, it's not a human on the other end of the line. It's, it's a computer talking to you or, uh, or a prior recording um, for any purpose, political, debt collection, whatever, um, telemarketing. Uh, those calls are worth, if you haven't given your prior express consent, they're worth $500 a piece. It can be trebled to $1,500 a piece if the, uh, if the violation was willful. Um, and then there's another provision that just applies to telemarketers, um, and that's if you're on the national do not call list, which you can go to do not call.gov and register your telephone number, and they call your, your telephone number. And if you have a personal cell phone that's used for residential use, you can also register it, it, it as well as a residential number. Um, but if they call your telephone number and you're on the do not call list for, uh, for the purposes of a telephone solicitation, which is to sell you something, um, and you've never done business with this company or you haven't done business in the last 18 months with this company, then that's a violation of the TCPA. And then that, that uh, under the same subsection, there's also a company-specific do not call list where if you have done business with a company, um, or you're not on the national do not call list and you're getting calls from someone and you say, hey, stop calling me. I don't want to receive calls anymore. They have to honor your do not call request and they have to maintain specific procedures um, not to make telemarketing calls um, to people who have uh, requested not to receive, uh, you know, the telemarketing calls from that entity. And those calls, again, can be worth between $500 and $1,500 a piece. You said that's a big part of your practice. I, I, yes. I can just picturing how many calls go out that violate that. Um, how many of those cases do you take in a year? Uh, we're selective on the cases that we take. Uh, we, we either want um, a lot of calls so that you have sufficient damages because, like I said, it's between $500 and $1,500 a call. Um, you know, I'm not suing over... Five hundred dollars. Yeah. So if you have a lot of calls, you know where. You know sometimes we'll have people with a hundred calls. Well, suddenly that's a viable case. Um, but if you have a few calls, um, well, I won't sue for you for five hundred dollars. I will if you're willing to represent a class, and you're willing to say, hey, I I don't like these calls. I want them to stop, and I want to send a message. If you're willing to represent a class, then we'll file it for you and everyone else they called, and we'll try to collect. Five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars for every single telemarketing call that they made. Well, that was a wealth of information. Um, <laughs> I think the and uh, the summary is there's a lot of potential claims out there. People doing things that consumers actually can take action upon, and uh, you know, just if you think you've got a case like that, I. Uh, recommend you reach out to Justin. I want to thank our guest, Justin Holcomb of Scar and Fiegel LLP for joining us on this podcast and to thank you for listening. You can find Justin at scarandfiegel.com and I'm going to need to spell that. That's S-K-A-A-R-A-N-D-F-E-A-G-L-E.com. You can visit me online at brickslaw.com. That's B-R-I-C-K-S-L-A-W.com. You can also rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or whatever, or wherever. Our, all of our contact information can be found in the link below. And for more details, you can personally email me at peter at brickslaw.com.